Good morning, historians from around the internet. Welcome back to the Old History Podcast. You're on the part of the Old History Project, where, as I've said a thousand times, the end goal here is to just make history more available to the people that want to learn. And that's just the end goal. So, no updates. Um, made a video, a really cool one. There was a, it's called a, a weir, fishing weir. It's a German word for fish trap uh, down on the Holston River uh, going across the, the Hubie Day Bridge in Rogersville. Went down with my cousin and we uh, we filmed it. It was really, really nice to see something that old. Of course, there's no telling how old exactly that thing is. You know, the Cherokee have been here for hundreds and, you know, maybe even up to, I think, a thousand years, I, I, I think. I'm not, don't quote me on that. They've been here for a while, so there's no telling how old that thing could be. But it's definitely older than at least 250 years because they were they were sort of pushed out of this area by at least the 1800s, or there, at least there were no mass congregations of them anymore by that time. And then, of course, they got you know forced to move out west in the Trail of Tears Act, the Indian Removal Act. But, you know, there's no telling how old that thing is. And right now on the lake's low, the river's low at Winter Pool, you can go and get a really good view of it. So if you're a listener and you live out there or you live within driving distance and you've never seen a fishing weir, I uh, highly suggest you go check it out and you cross the Hubie Day Bridge. It's on, depending on which way you come, you, you mean you'll be able to see it. It's a great big V in the middle of the river. Really cool. Alright, so before we jump in, I'd just like to give a shout out to my good friend Jason at the Beard Guy and Friends. He gives me all, all my beardly needs. It's winter time and he takes care of me. Also, if you want to donate to the Old History Project, you can subscribe directly to this podcast on anchor.fm forward slash old history. Alright, let's go. All right, so continuing with the trend of going over the you know the road to the revolution, the road to independence. We last talked about I think the Boston massacre and um, the declaratory acts and stuff like that. So the next thing to talk about is a pretty important. This was kind of like the final. This was like the final. Like the icing on the cake, just so to speak, for our uh, colonist and uh, uh, American ancestors. So, the Tea Act and the Boston Tea Party was passed by Parliament on May the 10th, 1773, and it basically granted the East India Company a monopoly on tea sales in the American colonies. It was what compelled a group a little group of people called the Sons of Liberty on the night of December 16, 1773 to disguise themselves as Mohawk natives. They boarded three ships which were anchored in Boston Harbor and they destroyed over 92,000 pounds of tea. The tea act was basically what was considered the final straw, the icing on the cake, and a series of unpopular policies and taxes imposed by Britain on the American colonies. The policy ignited a powder keg of opposition 
and resentment among American colonists and what was the catalyst of the Boston Tea Party. When the Tea Act was passed, it, it basically imposed no new taxes on the American colonies. The tax on tea had existed since the passing of the Townsend Revenue Act. Along with tea, the Townsend Revenue Act also taxed glass, lead, oil, paint, and paper. Now, due to several boycotts and protests which were rightfully placed, the Townsend Revenue Acts were repealed on all commodities except tea in 1770. The tea tax was kept in order to maintain Parliament's right to tax the colonies, and it was not intended to anger the American colonies. Instead, it was meant to be a bailout policy to get the British East India Company out of debt. As it was already suffering from massive amounts of debts incurred primarily from contractual payments due to the British government totaling 400,000 pounds a year. That's, you know, Euro, uh, that's how much, that was their money. They had pounds. That's what also some of our colonist uh, ancestors used too. Now, also, the East India Company was suffering financially as a result of the unstable political and economic atmosphere in India, and the European markets were weak due to debts from the French and Indian War, among other things. Which also, going back to that, that was a very, very expensive war for the British. And they were, they, they were trying to do everything they could to get back on their feet, because that war basically wiped them out. Now, outside of the tax on tea, which had been there since 1767, what angered the colonists about the Tea Act was that the British East India Company's government sanctioned monopoly on tea. Prior to the Tea Act, the East India Company uh, was required to exclusively sell its tea at auction in London, and this directly required the East India Company to pay a tax per pound of tea sold, which added to the company's financial burdens. The Tea Act ab aborted this restriction and granted the East India Company a license to export their tea to the colonies, and this also opened up the East India Company's markets to the lucrative American colonies. Additionally, under the Tea Act, duties Britain charged on tea shipped to the American colonies would be waived or refunded upon its sale. So here's where we start to get into some interesting stuff. With the passing of the Tea Act, seven, the 17 million pounds of unsold surplus tea the East India Company owned could be sold to markets in the American colonies. The tea was shipped to the American colonies and sold at a reduced rate. The Townsend, the Townsend Revenue Tea Act remained in place despite proposals to have it waived, and this Obviously, well, this angered the American colonists. The Revenue Act uh, did not get repealed, uh, or the tax on tea did not get repealed, like the other taxes in 1770. And it's believed that the Tea Act was a tactic to gain colonial support for the tax already enforced. The direct sale of tea by the agents of the British East India Company to the American colonies undercut the business of colonial merchants. Prior to the Tea Act, colonial merchants purchased tea directly from British markets or smuggled it into the colonies from, American, from illegal markets. They then shipped it back to the colonies for resale. Outraged that American merchants were uncut, undercut 
colonists initially in Philadelphia and New York refused the British East India Company tea to be offloaded and sent the ships back to England. In many colonial ports the, um, to protest the Tea Act, shipment of the East India Company tea was unloaded and left untouched on the docks to rot. When the Beaver, the Dartmouth, and the Eleanor all arrived in Boston in late November to the middle of December 1773, the colonists, which were led by the Sons of Liberty, wanted the ships to return to England and refused the unloading of the ship's cargo. Lieutenant Governor and Chief Justice of Massachusetts Thomas Hutchinson refused to let the ships ret refused to let the ships return to England, and held all three of the aforementioned ships in the Boston Harbor until the matters could be resolved and the tea offloaded. And this was basically what set the table for the Boston Tea Party. You know, they had their balloons out, they had the streamers, and on the night of December 16, 1773, 340 chests of East India Company tea was dumped into Boston Harbor by a bunch of traders' colonies. And this directly led to the Coercive Acts of 1774. <coughs> Excuse me. Coercive Acts, also known as the Intolerable Acts, which were put in place in the American colonies. They were a series of four laws passed by British Parliament to punish the colony of Massachusetts Bay for the Boston Tea Party. The four acts were the Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, and the Quartering Act. The Quebec Act of 1774 is sometimes included as one of the coercive acts too, although it was not related to the Tea Party. These oppressive acts sparked strong colonial resistance, including the meeting of the First Continental Congress which George Washington attended in September and October of 1774. The Boston Port Act was the first of the coercive acts, and Parliament passed the bill on March 31st, 1774, and King George III gave it royal assent on May the 20th. The act directly authorized the Royal Navy to block the Boston Harbor because quote-unquote, the commerce of His Majesty's subjects cannot be safely carried on there, end quote. The blockade commenced on June the 1st, 1774, and effectively closed Boston's port to commercial traffic, and additionally forbade any exports to foreign ports or provinces. The only imports allowed were the provisions for the British Army and necessary goods, such as fuel and wheat and ammunition. The act mandated that the port remained shuttered until Bostonians made restitution to the East Indian Company. You know, the people that owned the uh, 340 crates of tea we just dumped out in the, into the ocean. The king had determined that the colony was able to obey British laws and that British goods could once again be traded in the harbor safely. However, if the Bostonians refused to pay the East India Company or the king was unsatisfied, the harbor would be blockaded indefinitely. The next act would be the Massachusetts Government Act, and it, it imperiled representative government in the colony and assumed that Massachusetts was under mob rule. And to preserve the peace and good order of this province, Parliament passed the act on May the 20th, 1774, and it received royal assent on the same day. The Massachusetts Council, previously constituted as an elected body with a governor's approval, became appointed by the crown. 
Also, the act gave the new royal governor the ability to choose ju uh, judges and county sheriffs without the council's approval. County sheriffs would also now appoint jurors, and this harmed the impartiality of, of the colony's judicial system. The Government Act also restricted the town meetings to once a year with any additional meetings requiring the governor's direct approval. The Act for Impartial Administration of Justice gained the king's approval on the same day as the Government Act. This act sought to increase the power of the governor by giving him the ability to move a trial to another colony or even send it back to Great Britain if it was determined that, quote, an indifferent trial cannot be held within the said province, end quote. The act eliminated the right to a fair trial by one's peers, removing an established judicial principle dating back to Magna Carta. And uh, that that's a whole different ballgame. That's a whole different series of podcasts talking about Magna Carta. The Quartering Act was set forth and the final of the Coercive Acts, or the Intolerable Acts, it was given royal assent on June the 2nd, 1774, and the only act of the four to apply to every single colony. It allowed the high-ranking military officials to demand better accommodations for troops and to refuse inconvenient locations for quarters. The inability to effectively house troops in North America had been a long-standing issue. Troops were often billeted far from areas in which they operated, making it pretty difficult for the army to exercise any sort of control over the colonies. However, the act did not require colonists to house soldiers within their private homes, as it is commonly believed. That was taught to us in school, believe it or not. I remember that. The act did not require... Oh, God, and then went over that. It specifically indicated that soldiers were to be housed in uninhabitable houses, like outhouses, barns, or other buildings, yet they were to be quartered at the colonist expense. Now, the next one, the uh, Quebec Act, which, depending on who you talk to, it, it's considered an intolerable act. Some people don't consider it, some historians do. It was under consideration by Parliament long before the Boston Tea Party. It became a law soon after legislation to punish Massachusetts. Also known as the Canada Act, the law extended the borders of the province of Quebec southward into the Ohio River. The act also granted the free exercise of religion of the Church of Rome, as the territory was large to a French Catholic. The territory was home to a large French Catholic majority. While instituting English uh, criminal law, the act allowed French civil law to remain in place, which excluded trial by jury. The governor and legislative body established by the Quebec Act were crown-appointed. I cannot talk today, people. At a time of widespread religious intolerance, many Protestant colonists shuddered at the prospect of tolerating Catholicism in North America. And this is where you get into uh, what a lot of people talk about, where our colonist ancestors were trying to escape religious prosecution, because they couldn't worship like they wanted to. So the Intolerable Acts were basically, they were basically made to break Massachusetts Bay and to put the other colonies in place and show them, hey, this is what's going to happen if you guys rebel. 
Each of the acts were specifically designed to cause severe damage to a particular aspect of colonial life. The Boston Port Bill's assault on colonial trade damaged, a it damaged the economy, drove up unemployment, and starved the people of Boston. The Government Act abolished representative government by establishing an all-powerful governor, and the Justice Act removed the right to a fair trial. And the Quartering Act ensured close proximity to the British troops to colonists. And the Quebec Act challenged some of the major regions that colonists had fought in the French and Indian War to defend and expand Protestantism and representative government in North America. Now, as we will learn in another podcast, the colonists did not take these acts too kindly. And the petitioning of Parliament by the individual colonies had already proved it, it didn't even do any good. On July the 4th, 1774, none other than George Washington asked his friend Brian Fairfax, have we not addressed the Lords and re remonstrated the Commons? Thus, the First Continental Congress would meet on September 5th, 1774 to coordinate a colonial response to Parliament's actions. While attending Congress, Washington advocated for what he called the non-importation scheme, or the boycott of British imports, which was similar to the Fairfax Resolves that he had earlier uh, co-authored with George Mason. The Intolerable Acts had caused a pretty clear shift in the American and the colonist public opinion, where Washington had once questioned the radical Boston Tea Party, conceding that he said, we do not approve of their conduct in destroying the tea, and now he was behind. He fully supported the people of Boston as he understood that the Intolerable Acts threatened uh, the colonial, colonial way of life. And then the next thing we'll get into uh, will be the Sons of Liberty. Let's see. The Sons of Liberty, Continental Congress, and then the Declaration of Independence. But we'll do that a little later on. And the sources for these are ushistory.org, bostonteapartyship.com, mountvernon.org, and another one, but my webpage closed. Alright, so anyway, it's going to be a pretty long podcast. Hope you guys enjoy it. Remember, if you made it this far and you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it for a small monthly fee and support your favorite internet historian. Thank you guys so much for the support over the years, and let's do it again.